courage. I learned it from my adoptive mom. Hold my hand. You hold my hand. <laughs> Learn about adopting a team from foster care at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by AdoptUSKids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Thanks very much for listening. If you're not already a subscriber, please sign up at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen. Please, please leave us a nice review. This week, the rising backlash against ESG investing. Well over a decade, giant financial institutions like BlackRock and Vanguard have been investing a growing portion of their customers' funds into assets whose returns are measured not simply by financial value, but by the contribution they supposedly make towards wider goals deemed socially valuable. These include things, of course, such as environmental sustainability or the promotion of social justice. By 2020, global assets invested in these ESG funds total over $35 trillion, almost half of that in the US alone, representing almost a third of total US assets under management. But in the last few years, there's been growing doubt about the value and the wisdom of ESG investing. In the year to last October, the top 100 ESG funds, all but one, recorded negative returns. Critics are asking, why are investors putting hard-earned cash saved by employees and others to work in pursuit of political goals? Measurement of the performance of these funds has become increasingly opaque, with many investors claiming to be pursuing ESG goals when they're not. The SEC recently clamped down on this greenwashing, as it's known, and the amount of cash in ESG funds has slumped. And now there's a political reckoning. Republicans are using their new majority in the House of Representatives to pressure investors to drop ESG's often contentious political and social goals and simply go back to seeking the best financial returns for their customers. Last week, Republicans in Congress, with the backing of a couple of Democrats, voted to overturn a Biden administration rule that would permit pension fund managers to consider ESG goals in investing. President Biden has said that he will veto that move. So what is the future of ESG? Does pursuing social and political goals through investment produce lower returns for savers? Does it even actually do anything to improve the state of the world? To talk about this, I'm joined by veteran investment manager Terence Keeley. Terry has been an advisor to the world's largest sovereign wealth funds, national pension plans, endowments and asset managers for more than 30 years as a senior manager at BlackRock and UBS Investment Bank, among others. While he is a keen proponent of ethical investing, he has been highly critical of ESG, and he recently left BlackRock to set up his own investment fund. He's written widely on ESG and other investing matters, including in the op-ed pages of the Wall Street Journal. And last year, he published a widely read book called Sustainable, Moving Beyond ESG to Impact Investing. And Terry Keeley joins me now. Terry, thanks for joining Free Expression. Jerry, what a pleasure. I want to get into a lot of things with you, particularly your book, Sustainable, Moving Beyond ESG Investing. And I want to talk about what's gone wrong, if you like, in the current climate around ESG, and particularly the political backlash towards it. So let's start with the most basic questions, if we may. Tell us about how ESG came about. There's always obviously been interest in ethical investing. People have been able to been free to invest in things that they think are socially valuable and to avoid investing in things they don't like, like tobacco and alcohol or tyrannical regimes around the world. So that's always been a part of the investing climate. But ESG is something much more pervasive and much broader. And obviously, in the last few years, it's become huge. Tell us how ESG came about and how it's developed over the last, well, two decades or so. It's really the right question to start with, Jerry, because the laws of ESG were certainly not hewn into two tablets of stone and gifted to Moses on Mount Sinai. 
Uh, they were actually thought up by 20 individuals who had been hand-selected by former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan, great man, by the way, a number of whom were my friends. And those particular principles were codified into the United Nations Principles for Responsible Investing, otherwise known as the UNPRI. That's really about 2005. So if you want to trace the origins of ESG, you have to go back to the efforts of the UNPRI. As you say, socially responsible investing, that's not decades old. It's not even centuries old. It's millennia old. You can go to find rules in Genesis or even further back, if you like, about uh, laws against charging excessive interest, for example. But the best way to understand ESG is that it morphed out of the United Nations Principles for Responsible Investing and somehow ended up becoming the grossest misallocation of financial assets in history. That's a very good introduction, and I want to pick you up right on that. So just explain that. I mean, first of all, how big it's become. Again, there are various estimates, and we know that one of the things I want to get into a little bit about is the measurement of what a genuine ESG fund is very, very hard to tell, and the SEC has been clamping down on some of these things recently. Give us a sense, if you would, of the scale of it, both in terms of trillions of dollars now that are invested in ESG funds and what as a proportion of total assets in the United States and the world, just how significant has ESG become? And some of the taxonomies are disputed, but let's do the facts that are known. There are now 5,000 signatories, Jerry, of the UNPRIs. Collectively, they have investable assets of more than $120 trillion. Bloomberg Intelligence has done most of the work on the size of the ESG market. Last year, they estimated that total ESG funds were about $40 trillion, and they would rise to $53 trillion by 2025. If that were the case, they would account for a third of all investment assets globally. So what we know is that tens of trillions of dollars have been allocated to investment funds and strategies. And those funds and strategies are broadly premised on the claim that one can do well and do good meaning that one can outperform broad market indices uh, like the S&P 500 or MSCI Global, while simultaneously advancing some desirable social and environmental goal. Uh, As you know, and this has now been, I think, widely documented in actual practice, ESG strategies have underperformed those broader indices. And it's increasingly clear that they've generated no tangible or social and environmental progress that would not have taken place otherwise. So let's dig into that. So you say they've underperformed broader market indices. Now, defenders of ESG will say, we obviously, as with every investment, it depends on your time frame for measurement. The last year or so in particular has been particularly awful for ESG. I, I was looking at some numbers, and I think in the year to October, out of the 100 top ESG funds, only one made a positive return. But they'll say, look, this is obviously because of what's happened to the energy market, in particular in the last year, and what's happened to technology stocks. Energy stocks have gone through the roof. Tech stocks, in which these ESG funds are often heavily invested, have gone through the floor. This is a short time frame. But give us a sense over a longer time frame just how much these funds are underperforming and how much they are failing to produce good returns for their investors? Well, it's hard actually, you know, Jerry, to give um, much longer term data because in actual fact, you'd have to impute what ESG was longer ago. And I think we're going to have to get into a little bit of the technicalities of what these environmental, social and governance metrics or scores have ultimately amounted to. In actual fact, there are dozens of institutions that have gone about and tried to put metrics between these three variables. And let's understand that the principles for responsible investing, rightly, in my opinion, and I think in the opinion of many others, highlighted the fact 
that within each one of these categories, environmental, social, and governance, there are genuine material risks that need to be accounted for and that need to be brought to light. And of course, a large part of the advocacy for ESG metrics over the recent period of time, and certainly on a go-forward basis, is whether or not climate risks are properly manifested in financial risks and in financial discounting. The challenge is that what has ended up happening, Jerry, unlike in the credit markets, where between Moody's, Fitch, and S&P, the three primary credit agencies, there are broad, let's say, conformability of the outcomes. There's not one person rating a triple A credit to the same credit and another doing single A. There's a lot of conformity. That is not the case in the ESG markets. We have any number of rating agencies that, for example, have rated Pepsi-Cola higher than Coca-Cola, and then a completely different one, Coca-Cola over Pepsi. If you have such disparity between these various rating agencies, how is it, in fact, possible to generate alpha out of it? There's even the more testy point, of course, that got under Elon Musk's skin when Tesla was recently booted out of S&P's ESG index. As you know, that led to quite a lot of blowback from Mr. Musk. He was happy to be in, but not so happy when he got booted out. The lack of conformability, Jerry, between the very rating agencies is just one, let's say, yellow flag for how it is that this market and the analytics that have been built around it are going to be able to deliver on that first premise, which is we can outperform the market. How can you outperform the market when in actual fact there's such disparity amongst the rating agents? I want to get on to the second point as well because the point you make very well in your book and in articles that you've written, not least for the Wall Street Journal, is not only that they represent a misallocation of, of investor funds in terms of the returns for their investors, but they're actually not even achieving the goals that they're supposed to. But again, is it just to be clear, I understand there are measurement issues and, and you, all the things that you've just laid out there extremely well, but is it very clear that this idea that you can do well by doing good has not been sustained, has not been proven over, say, the last 10 years, and that, in fact, if you'd stuck your money into a traditional mutual fund or a traditional fund, institutional fund, you would have done better, you know, with a full range of investments in companies that are involved in fossil fuel extraction and companies that don't meet these goals of social justice and equity and all that kind of stuff. You would have done better in a kind of traditional portfolio investments than you would have done if you'd been in kind of average basket of ESG investments. There's a lot of academic evidence, Jerry, on what are called factors. Factors are broad characteristics of baskets of stocks, some cases quality, in some cases value, in some cases growth. And the evidence has shown over a long period of time that investing in one of those various factors could potentially outperform the market. The greatest correlation between ESG scores and the factor-based investing market, which again has decades of evidence behind it, is the quality score, the quality factor. It turns out companies, this is going to be no surprise to anybody listening in, companies that are highly attentive to their governance, very, very careful about their auditing, that are highly attentive to their employees, that are highly attentive to their supply chains. Yeah, unsurprisingly, those particular companies oftentimes do outperform other companies without those same characteristics. But that's got nothing to do with ESG, Jerry. It's not like there was any type of causality. 
between those timeless principles and obviously the outcome for those basket of stocks. As you know, Larry Fink very graciously wrote a foreword to my book, and in it, he basically compares the ESG market to the mortgage-backed securities market when he started off his career. And what he says is that a lot of people doubted it. There was not a lot of data. Over time, you know, data improved. And today, look, lo and behold, mortgage-backed securities market does a lot of good and has obviously outperformed other sectors of the market. The implication of that is please hold your breath, stick with us. In 20 to 30 years, we will figure out exactly how to make the most out of this emerging space, ESG. I think that Tim Buckley, quite candidly, Jerry, for good reason, has blown the whistle on this. Just last week, I wrote about it in the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, the guy from Vanguard, right, who's uh, pulled out of these sort of net zero targets. Just explain that, who he is and what, and what the background is there. Vanguard, depending on the day you measure it, is either the largest or second largest asset manager in the world. Of course, Vanguard was birthed by the late, great and brilliant John Bogle, who spent a lot of time proving to the asset management industry, much to their dismay, that it is far more sensible to own a broad basket of stocks and put that on autopilot rather than pretend you can beat the market. It's very, very, very hard to beat the market because of the way the market is defined. And if there was one thing I would love listeners to come away from this particular podcast with is that there is nothing passive about index investing. Indices are broadly continuously updated, usually twice a year, to reflect changes in the underlying dynamics of what those indices are trying to measure. So in the case of the S&P 500, 20% of the stocks are eliminated every year, and they are replaced by emerging companies. They usually have to have some very basic characteristics. They have to have a certain market capitalization of X. There has to be a sufficiently broad public float. But they also normally have to be somewhat profitable. So a lot of work is done by these indice keepers, MSCI, S&P. There's many, many, many index providers. And they are, in fact, today's emperors. They're the ones who are deciding, in effect, how which companies are going to be bought and sold and measured. One thing that Tim Buckley points out in his recent revelations with the Financial Times, but also with the announcements they made last year, is that Vanguard has come to the conclusion, unsurprisingly, that it is very unlikely that ESG indices, which are broadly based on excluding companies rather than broad inclusion, they are unlikely to outperform broader indices for the reasons I just described. Broader indices are, in fact, much more likely to represent how the actual economy works. We're going to take a quick break there, but when we come back, I'll have more with Terry Keeley, and particularly asking him why he thinks the era of ESG investing is actually over. Courage. I learned it from my adoptive mom. Hold my hand. You hold my hand. Learn about adopting a team from foster care at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by AdoptUSKids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. I'm back with veteran investment manager Terry Keeley. We're talking about ESG investing. 
Let's move on quickly to the other point about doing well by doing good. Again, I think you've made a pretty clear case there that these investments have not particularly performed well. You know, again, however you measure them, they haven't been particularly rewarding investments. But again, from your also point that the whole objective of this, supposedly to you know improve the state of the world and to include these other considerations, environmental, social, and governance, they haven't really achieved that either. The environment is the obvious case. We still have, you know, although there is tremendous, obviously continuing political pressure towards things like net zero. I mean, in terms terms of the performance of energy companies, in terms of the importance of energy, of traditional energy companies to the economy, these investments haven't moved us towards a more sustainable economic model at all, have they, in the last 20 years or so? There is no cause and effect, Jerry, between where investors put their capital and how the real economy behaves. In fact, the causation is the other way. If you would like to have a global economy with declining net emissions of carbon, the focus really will first and foremost need to be on consumers and consumer behavior. This was, of course, the logic of a carbon tax. If we make carbon so expensive, people will stop using so much of it. I think I'd like to give a shout out to the wonderful work of Vaclav Smil, who has pointed out that, in fact, a great deal of human prosperity over the last two centuries, but uh, even take it over the last 30, 40, 50 years, has been the result of ubiquitous, cheap, affordable, and reliable energy that has been provided by fossil fuels. So much so that the average greenhouse tomato that is consumed in the Northern Hemisphere during the month of January has five tablespoons of diesel fuel in it. Jerry, if we want to stop actually all the consumption of fossil fuels in the world, we're going to somehow have to do what Putin has done, which is to give a very, very expensive carbon tax and watch that filter through the system. There has been a boon of green energy investments in Europe just in the last year, unsurprisingly because of how expensive gas and the normal sources of energy they use have become. You want to talk about double bottom line investing, and I do as well. If, in fact, I had a dream, it would be that we would somehow find the ESG phenomenon morphing away from its current status as a hotbed of political controversy to a much more constructive conversation about the pros and the cons of sustainable investing. And frankly, to provide greater sanctity to those investors who genuinely want their capital to do well and do good, uh, which is what they presumed they were doing when they bought ESG. I tell the quick story about going over my nieces and nephews 401k one Thanksgiving. And there they were, Jerry, in all these ESG funds. And I said, well, why do you own these ESG funds? Oh, you know, climate change, uh, make the world a better place. We want to limit income inequality. Jerry, these funds do no such thing. These funds merely invest in companies that are already somehow adjudicated to have been somehow more moral or virtuous or more aligned with the net zero goals. There is no causality between a net zero portfolio and a net zero world. In fact, every single financial asset in the world could be invested in accordance with the Paris Accord, and we could still not be on our way 
to a plus 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2050. Your little anecdote there about your niece is, is a good example. You know, if you talk to people like Larry Fink, and I have, and he, I've discussed this very topic with him, he will say to you, look, we're just responding to investor demand. We're responding both to the changing reality of our world in that many more companies understand the importance of becoming more green and more energy efficient and you know reducing their carbon footprint and all of that. But we're also responding to investors like your niece and like others who actually want clean investing. And we're just the sort of channel. We're just the kind of vessel for these ethical ideals or these ideals about where people actually want their money invested. They want their money to do good. But that's not really true, is it? I mean, if no disrespect to BlackRock, the company used to work for, or these other ones, but they're doing much more than simply kind of passively responding to investor demand. I have the highest regard for my ex-colleagues at BlackRock and for Larry Fink personally, so I just want to get that on the record. Um, Jerry, I oversaw a number of important client businesses and, of course, managed many important client relationships over my career at BlackRock and UBS. And I will tell you, that not a single client of mine invests in an ESG fund. Not a single one opted for it. And had they opted for it, they would have found an intensive debate with me over why are you doing this? What are your goals for doing this? And I would have pushed back. It is all well and good for any number of members of the asset management industry, BlackRock included, to say, well, we're just about consumer choice. We want to give our clients as many different options as possible. Unfortunately, I've run my career and my advisory work against a slightly different standard. And that standard is, is what you're trying to do, what you're trying to achieve, likely to result from the particular investment strategy that you are undertaking? One of my closest relationships, as I'm sure you know, is the University of Notre Dame. The University of Notre Dame obviously operates their investment strategies for their endowment in accordance with Catholic principles. That's just what they believe. But there has been no, Jerry, no compromise at Notre Dame between operating with Catholic principles and maximizing returns. The largest sovereign wealth fund in the world is that of Norway. It is a trillion plus fund. And their investment philosophy is very simple. They are trying to maximize returns responsibly. Maximize returns responsibly. I would argue that one can maximize returns responsibly and stay as far away from the ESG thesis as one may choose. We've seen a growing backlash, particularly in the last couple of years, particularly intensifying in the last, let's say, in the last year or even the last few months against ESG investing. And some of it is financial, you know, recognition that the returns have not been very good and all these large promises that you can do well by doing good have not really been realized. Some of it is to do with a little bit of the things we've talked about, which is some of the incredibly kind of opaque and rather vague measurement issues and funds claiming to be ESG funds to attract ESG investing when in fact they're not so-called greenwashing, all of that kind of stuff. There's been criticism of that. But I think the most interesting and the most potent criticism has come from the political field. Republicans in Congress, we've been seeing a lot of that since they took control of the House of Representatives earlier this year. We've seen some of the presidential candidates talking about this and the argument they make, and it does sound like a very powerful one, and I want to get your view on this, for want of a better phrase, woke capitalism. This is the pursuit of progressive 
aims, whether it be very, very aggressive, ambitious plans to move towards uh, to decarbonization, or whether it is things like the promotion of gender and racial equality or equity, as is now talked about in terms of board memberships and the type of things that companies are doing. This is business leaders driving a progressive left-wing political agenda, which is resulting in reduced returns for hardworking workers who are investing their pension money in these things and is advancing a progressive political cause. Is that criticism basically fair? Well, certainly the worries behind the possibilities of the misapplication of the insights that ESG was intended to provide should be a worry, Jerry. I like to say that we should all want every corporation to be excellent, not excellent at ESG. Being an excellent corporation, of course, means you are maximizing profitability, uh, but you're also maximizing probity. You are trying to be the best company you can be. ESG, I think, has implicitly, in some cases explicitly, caused a number of corporate boardrooms to ask questions about potentially risks in their supply chain, how they could lower their carbon footprints, uh, whether or not they have sufficiently diverse views in their boardroom, whether or not they are as sufficiently attentive to their employees, to their suppliers, the, the broad cases of stakeholder capitalism. But To be quite honest, the fiduciary rule covers all of those. The way the DOL rule got rewritten between its first proposal last fall and where it ended up being adopted seems to be relatively innocuous. I would still vote against it. The Department of Labor ruled that the Congress recently, with the support of a couple of Democrats in the Senate, voted to overturn, which was essentially one that would enable pension fund managers to invest in ESG. Because just for clarification, we're talking about that, right? And the President Biden is saying he's going to veto the congressional move. And this is exactly the point. The very first veto, Jerry, of the Biden administration is going to be to override bipartisan decisions in the House and Senate about the possible misallocation of this ESG rule that has been put out by the Department of Labor. You're right. I mean, this just shows how, frankly, crazy this political conversation has become when, in actual fact, great investment ideas, great investment strategies are not red or blue. They're just great investment strategies. And there's reasons to be worried about how the DOL rule in the hands of different types of either asset managers or unions or pensions might be employed. I always say, and I I said this in my last article in the National Review, that I believe, Jerry, we are witnessing the dying, the end of ESG. In fact, Professor Alex Edmonds of the London Business School just wrote a terrific paper entitled The End of ESG. And what I mean by that is that this phenomenon of taking these three letters, of trying to identify where alpha potential has been in them and try to project that forward. This has been tried many, many, many times in the past by the asset management industry. You'll remember perhaps the brick phenomenon when we were told that the only stocks to invest in emerging markets were Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, hence the BRICS. Or there was a time when the FANG phenomenon of the asset management industry, Facebook, Apple, Alphabet, Netflix, and Google said, well, these are the only stocks you need to own. 
I am virtually certain that the analogy to ESG is apt and that the attempt to try to quantify and then translate into specific investment strategies from this, these three categories of concerns is in its dying days. And it should be. It's interesting you say that, but it does seem as though, again, I don't want to sort of indulge too much these kind of handy terms, but this idea of woke capitalism, which we've seen in woke capitalism, which we've seen in the last couple of years and companies, whether it is moving off ESG here slightly here, but companies taking very public stances on contentious political issues like voting bills in Georgia or North Carolina's kind of bathroom agenda policy with regards to bathrooms. You say it's, you know, that the ESG is retreating and maybe it is, but it does look as though so many of these companies, and I assume that applies to many Wall Street firms too, and that are prominent in ESG investing, do seem to be in the last few years more aggressively turning their corporations into vehicles for the pursuit of progressive ideals and ideology. And we can argue about the merits of that, but it seems to me that that's an entrenched phenomenon now in business. And again, you know, conservatives are pushing back on it, Republicans are pushing back on it, and maybe they'll make some progress. But I'm wondering where your confidence that the ESG is in retreat, how that fits into that broader picture of what we've seen in the last couple of years. I think you're right to highlight that a number of institutions are in fact embracing this ethos, but many do so for commercial reasons. When Larry Fink was uh, defending some of his recent decisions at Davos in January this year, he highlighted the fact that BlackRock had seen $4 billion worth of red state redemptions, but against that had seen $230 billion worth of inflows, inferring, in fact, Jerry, that there was something like a 50 to 1 advantage for BlackRock to have, let's say, a more progressive image with regard to some of these issues in stakeholder capitalism. That could be true. As we know, Patagonia has made their entire ethos, their entire corporate identity, a function of sustainability, the circular economy. And that increasingly is something that is being rewarded in the marketplace. By the way, conservative principles can and should accept the fact that I don't care if it's woke or not woke, if it is generating higher market share, better returns, higher stock prices for share owners. Well, of course, Jerry, I don't care if it's woke, broke or other. It's still capitalism. It's still working. Isn't part of the problem here, part of the argument that you can absolutely believe in net zero. You can believe that's the right thing to do. I don't happen to believe in it, but you can believe it's a reasonable goal. You can believe in all kinds of social justice and all this kind of stuff. But the proper field, the proper domain to resolve those debates and those discussions is the political domain, is the, you know, it's, it's people going to the polls and voting for elected representatives who choose the direction for their country. And I think the fear is, isn't it, that's being taken out of the hands of the people. It's being taken out of the hands of the political domain and, and of democratic processes and being, in a sense, forced on them by companies over whom, let's be honest, thanks to their own governance issues, we don't really have any control. And think of exactly why that is the case, Jerry. Edelman does a trust barometer that you've probably seen the results of year after year. They actually estimate how much trust the public has in the public domain, in the media sector, in the philanthropic sector, and the business sector. And what the data shows clearly in recent years is that the highest amount of trust 
that is to say the highest faith of those four pillars of society, call it what you will, is right now with the business sector. And it's because the failures of our public sector and our political leaders, the failures of other participants in societal outcomes, that a growing amount of pressure is being put on our business leaders. Well, that should be of grave concern to all of us. A book I'd recommend to the audience is by Rag Rajan, the former chief economist of the IMF, former governor of the Reserve Bank of India. When he talks about the third pillar, what he says is societies flourish when there is balance between the government sector, the business sector, and of course the NGO, private sector, civic society, as he calls it. Well, we are out of balance. Part of the grave concerns that the younger generation has today, which I think is valid and which I try to get into my book and which will be a good segue to solutions, is that they look at current outcomes. They see frankly, disastrous weather patterns that are destroying, frankly, livelihoods for millions of people already. Just look at what happened in Pakistan. And they also realize that the top 1% controls seven times the amount of wealth of the bottom 50% in the world. And they say, these trends are not sustainable. They're not sustainable socially, and they're not sustainable environmentally. This is what we call negative externalities. There is no doubt that capitalism, free market capitalism, generates negative externalities. And typically, the way those would be handled are through government action, some type of government action. Well, there is not a lot of trust today in the United States, and I think elsewhere. That's why we have this raft of books that are coming out, Bernie Sanders, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism, Brad DeLong, We Are Slouching Towards Utopia, or Martin Wolf's most recent book, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. Crises, everyone's talking about this. And the pressure for business to do more about it, which is not, in my opinion, the right way to go about it, is a natural adjunct, a natural corollary to the fact that others are failing at what they need to do. We've diagnosed the problem, I think, very, very thoroughly. And let's very quickly end with your prescription. Your book is called Sustainable Moving Beyond ESG to Impact Investing. And we've talked a lot. We started off talking about the importance of ethical investing and the continuing saliency of ethical investing. You believe ESG is, is essentially on the wane and you think it's going to be replaced. Very briefly, if you would, what your vision is for the future of investing if ESG is indeed in, in decline. You know, Jerry, capital owners who are insistent that they make decent returns, but also positively impact environmental and social outcomes, have a lot of opportunities, have a lot of alternatives to ESG. I highlight many of them in my book, but let me just highlight a few here. We have a housing crisis in the United States of America. Approximately 35 million Americans live in households where 50% of their income is spent on rent. We need to have more affordable housing for the millions of families now and yet to come who are overspending on rent. It turns out that there are multiple low-income housing solutions, community by community, for which the equity investors, those who are providing the principal up front, the returns can be anywhere from inflation plus 1,000 to 2,000 percent. That is to say somewhere between 15 and 20 percent over the life cycle of their investment. That should be sufficient, Jerry, 
for someone who's looking to do well and do good, solve a social problem. There's a great positive work that's being done with the Sorensen Impact Foundation out in Utah. I don't know if you know the Sorensen team, but they have found that investing in companies, investing in venture capital, and all those enterprises that are serving the underserved, and what do I mean by serving the underserved? Those who do not have sufficient access to healthcare, do not have sufficient access to education, it can be extraordinarily profitable. In fact, the returns on their private investment portfolio are in excess of 60%, 60% annualized. I can give you multiple examples in the real asset sector of tearing down dirty buildings and building lead certified buildings, which are suddenly worth a lot more money. People pay much more rent for them. The point being that the ability for discerning investors to build portfolios of stocks, bonds, venture capital, loans, and real assets that verifiably do well and do good, generate at or above market rates of return, and somehow benefit some class environmentally or socially, removing carbon from the air, the asset owner gets to choose. There is no lack of opportunity. In fact, I have an article coming out in Pensions and Investments shortly that identifies there is $4.5 trillion worth of such available investments per annum over the next 10 years. Very keen. Sure, our listeners would love to hear more about your thoughts and your uh, thoughts about the future investing, and they can certainly read your book, Sustainable, Moving Beyond the ESG to Impact Investing. Terence Keeley, thanks very much indeed for joining Free Expression. Jerry, a pleasure. Well, that's it for this episode of Free Expression. I'll be back next week with another in-depth exploration of a big topic that shapes our world. In the meantime, thanks very much for joining us, and goodbye. <laughs>